Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch the season premiere of Grey's Anatomy tonight at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. From the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, this is Free Expression with Jerry Baker. Hello and welcome to Free Expression with me, Jerry Baker, from the Wall Street Journal editorial page. Thanks very much for joining us. If you're not already, please be sure to subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. And please do leave us a nice review. Free expression, we all know, is essential to a healthy democracy. And so each week on this podcast, we aim to contribute by having a wide-ranging and candid conversation with leading practitioners and commentators in the world of politics, business, technology, academia, the arts and culture, etc., exploring in depth the themes, people, and topics that shape our world. I'm glad to say that my guest this week is Noah Rothman, conservative commentator, author, and associate editor of Commentary Magazine. And Noah's a distinguished anatomist of our modern political and cultural conditions. His first book, Unjust, Social Justice and the Unmaking of America, was a very well-timed exploration of the modern ideology of social justice that's tearing at the threads of the American fabric. His new book, The Rise of the New Puritans, Fighting Back Against Progressives' War on Fun, is just out. It's a terrific read that examines the lunatic extremism of the modern progressive cultural creed and places it in historical context as a kind of warped latter-day successor to the puritanism that animated many of the earliest Americans. It is an ideology, he says, and I quote from the book, that emphasizes political utility over personal pleasure. From the comedy you enjoy to the sports you watch to the sex you have, or increasingly don't, a particular sort of left-wing activist insists that these and many other private activities have a public dimension. They must contribute to the promotion of a wholesome society. We're going to explore what these particular pathologies are and how we got here and what we can do about them now with Noah Rothman. Noah, thanks very much for joining me. Thank you for having me, Jerry. I appreciate that generous introduction. And congratulations on the book, which is a terrific read. I want to get into some of the, you do dissect in very telling ways, some of these, one of a better word, are kind of called woke obsessions, telling us how we should be living our lives. But I want to start with the point you make right at the beginning, which is that it's another example, I think, and you capture it very well, of the inversion of so much of our sort of political and cultural lives that we've seen in the last 20, 30 years or so, telling people how to live their lives or being censorious about things we should do and the entertainment we should enjoy used to be seen as the preserve of the right, the right wing, who would lead campaigns against obscenity in publishing and in TV. There were famous fights in the 1970s and 80s and even 90s about where conservatives objected to what was on our TV screens or in our books or whatever. There's this extraordinary inversion. We now do live, as, and again, as you will capture in the book, in an age in which that mantle of sort of controlling authority or attempted controlling authority in our lives has been passed over to the left and the progressives. How do you think that came about? That's a very fascinating question. How did that come about? Well, honestly, there's something of a dynamic that you can attribute primarily to negative partisanship. When the right had primarily the cultural tendency to see in seemingly innocent cultural fare the capacity to corrupt you and degrade society as a whole, you could count on the left to respond in the precise opposite way. They emphasize self-fulfillment for its own sake, self-gratification, even hedonism to a degree. There was a political ethos, less so a moral framework, except insofar as doing what felt good because it felt good was a moral framework emerging from the uh, counter-cultural wars and the sexual revolution of the 1960s and early 1970s. Um, 
but it was anathema to progressivism. Progressivism emerged in the 19th century, as we understand it, incubating in the mainline Protestantism of New England. And it had a very religious aspect to it. As the left gravitated away from progressivism and more towards liberalism, classical or otherwise, it generally celebrated the promotion of self-satisfaction as a value, as a virtue. The culture war, the countercultural ethos that emerged in the 1960s, 1970s, took over the culture in the 80s and the politics in the 90s, has subsided as progressives gravitate away from liberalism and more towards progressivism. The sexual revolution is subsiding. Its prescriptions around self-gratification and personal liberty are falling out of favor. So the conflict in the classrooms and the streets that we see between the, the let-live generation and their austere progeny is something of a generational, perhaps a, a predictable generational revolution. The right has very little to do with it, I think. But in any event, what we're treated to now are the sort of moral crusades that you would previously attribute to the right and to a philosophy that doesn't have a whole lot of faith in you, that is actually rather mistrustful of you, and sees in the cultural fare you consume, in the tabloid trash you read, in the music you listen to, the capacity to corrupt you, to degrade society. And so every aspect of the commanding heights that remains beholden to or captured by this progressive left identity has dedicated itself to promoting moral values, imposing plotting didactic narratives on entertainment products so they serve a higher social purpose, reminding you that the joke you enjoy came at the expense of somebody who had to experience some pain so that you could enjoy a punchline, sports coverage that shoehorn uh, racial dynamics into the coverage of athletics, and when fans object, they're admonished for putting their escapism over their duty to dwell on the world's miseries. Why did this happen? I contend that by teasing out the threads, that connect the progressivism of today to its nascent, its inception in the 19th century. And the Puritanism from which it emerged from the ashes of the Puritan experiment shares a lot of the philosophical habits of mind that progressives have adopted, primarily among them, a hatred of idleness, a fear of idleness. That's what's not promoting the progressive project is taking away from it or detracting from it. I want to dig into these historical antecedents that you, again, that you go through in the book, but I'm wondering if in particular, in the context of the last generation, let's say, whether this is a kind of a feature of, or even a corollary of the advancing secularism. We have, you know, seen quite sharp, significant drop-offs in conventional religious beliefs and observance in the United States. And in its place, there does seem to be this continuing sort of yearning for for meaning, for a practical creed, as well as understanding what we're here for. And it does look at people have written this, and you again, you mentioned this in the book, particularly about the environmental movement. The environmental movement has all the trappings and all the appearances and appurtenances of a religion. We've fallen from you know, an original state of, you know, Garden of Eden, state of goodness through our own sinfulness, and we need to wear sackcloth and ashes and atone for our sins. Is it, do you think, allied to what we're seeing, this new Puritanism, or is it a form of sort of secular religion, do you think? Yeah, it has the aesthetics of secular religion. I maintain that it transcends religious practice and political practice. It's sort of a blend of both. I tend to look at it as a modus vivendi, as a way of life, a theory of social organization, as it were, which is what the Puritans practiced. They didn't practice pure religion or just politics. It was all of the above. There were very few distinctions between the two, in fact. And as you say, the trappings 
of religiosity and the practice of what I maintain are virtues. The chapters are organized by unimpeachable virtues to which any society that wants to promote itself and self-perpetuate should advance. Um, piety, prudence, austerity, a fear of God, temperance, and order. And what you see in the practice of this new creed, of actually it's a very old creed that's just been rediscovered, are extravagant displays of self-denial, the avoidance of self-gratification, an essentialism that embraces outward displays of labor and penitence and piety, which has the capacity to establish boundaries for you, boundaries for your loved one, boundaries for society, and the effort to regularize society, to create order out of chaos. These are probably essential human characteristics. They just happen to fall out of favor and win the sexual revolutionaries and the countercultural revolutionaries had the, achieved the apex of their power. This movement is dedicated to purging the culture of its vulgarity, of its immodesty. And they wouldn't talk about this in terms of morality. It's, it's rather judgmental. But they do practice judgment, and they project inward insecurities onto externalities, most of which are just banal, banal preoccupations, pastimes, happy diversions, that you, as the uninitiated observer, wouldn't see as being vehicles for the promotion of impure thought. But the initiated do, the new Puritans do, and that provides you with a sense of exclusivity and self-fulfillment. So there are a variety of ways in which this, the practice of what to uninitiated observers looks like fanaticism, but looks to them like seriousness of purpose and sobriety, and it provides a sense of self-fulfillment insofar as you're advancing a perceived social good. That has to substitute for the kind of self-gratification that an earlier generation would see as the point of enjoying sports or fly fishing or gardening or half a dozen other activities that are now laden with America's original sins. Let's talk about some of these activities, because I do think, again, I think what's so striking about what unifies them all in a way is the people who kind of believe in them and practice them. I think it's probably, this is what is so supportive of your point, that this is a kind of new religious fervor, kind of like a fourth great awakening or something that the u.s is going through is that what unites people you know again you describe very well you know whether it's uh, people saying we mustn't eat meat for environmental reasons the attack on sports on professional sports you do document that on the nfl how entertainment has to conform entirely to the rules how comedians can be cancelled for saying things that seem to be somehow inappropriate again you wouldn't necessarily think that there is a kind of an ideological alignment between say environmentalism and even for that matter, you know, taking the knee in the post-George Floyd protest. But it's the same people. It's, I mean, they really are strikingly the same people who subscribe to all of these beliefs. It's to the point where you can't ignore it and say, well, this is just an outgrowth, a byproduct, perhaps an unhappy one. But it seems increasingly that the point is to remove the capacity you have to disengage from the world's horrors. It is to remind you at every waking moment of that which you should be grateful for, which is, again, kind of a conservative value, and also the needs of others that are going unmet. And in the practice of this, in the imposition of this rather you know, valuable self-awareness, it robs you of joy. And let's take, for example, just the practice of holidays, just holidays alone, Christmas, Thanksgiving, Fourth of July. We just went through a Fourth of July in which, not exactly nutpicking when we say the government of Orlando put out the following statement. A lot of people probably don't want to celebrate in our nation right now, and we can't blame them. When there is so much division, hate, and unrest, why on earth would you want to have a party celebrating any of it? 
The same could be said for the practice of gathering around the, the table for Thanksgiving or Christmas. You are instructed in the instruction manuals of the modern New Puritan to engage your relatives and confront them with the evils that surround them so that they can be aware of the extent to which they're benefiting from the horrors that are all around them and they're kind of and they're you know ignorant of them but it's also a form of puritanism that is so native to the practice of congregationalism in the 1600s that you can't ignore it and it wasn't the holiday itself that was the problem it was the habits and behaviors that you engaged in much like today it allows you the opportunity to step back from the world's terrors and enjoy yourself for a moment to quote Cotton Mather, all licentious liberty, mad mirth, by long eating, hard drinking, and lewd gaming. It isn't the holiday. It's what you do with it. Because you can't be trusted to enjoy yourself. That is an abdication of your moral duty to spend every waking moment considering how you can advance the noble work of our time. And in our time, to the progressive Puritan, it is the progressive project, the advancement of racial rapprochement, reducing economic disequilibrium, and environmental protection. Again, virtuous in the abstract. It's the practice that makes of them totem, something that's zealous, that it requires the absolute zeal and intolerance for anything other than maximalist commitment to the cause renders you something a little suspect. We're going to take a short break there, but when we come back, we'll have more with Noah Rothman talking about his book, The Rise of the New Puritans, Fighting Back Against Progressive's War on Fun. This podcast is brought to you by Northern Trust Wealth Management. There's more to being a successful entrepreneur than just good business practices. What is it about an entrepreneur's childhood that helped fuel their entrepreneurial spirit? What are entrepreneurs doing to cultivate this spirit in their own children and build a legacy beyond their business? Tune in each month to the Road to Why podcast by the Northern Trust Institute, where host Eric Shapea dives deeper with leading entrepreneurs on these topics and more. Find the road to why where you listen to your favorite podcasts. Welcome back. I'm talking with Noah Rothman about the new Puritanism that grips our country. One small quibble I have with you, I think other people have addressed this to you too, is I wonder how like the Puritans of old these new Puritans really are. Because it seems to me that you know, the Puritans of old genuinely believed in their own sinfulness. They believed in, the, obviously, the inevitable fallen nature of man. They believed in their sinfulness, and they believed that this could be somehow expiated by all of the things we've talked about by living this life of asceticism and austerity and all this kind of stuff. It does seem to me that these new Puritans that you describe in the book, first of all, they're very happy with their own lives. They don't regard themselves as being remotely sinful. And the only sin they're prepared to acknowledge is the sin of, quote unquote, sort of society, things like systemic racism and climate change, that kind of stuff. And very strikingly, of course, when they say systemic, they are problem, they don't really mean our problem, my problem, they mean your problem. They mean people like you or people like me. It's a censoriousness. It's more of a, you know, I'm right, you're wrong, you know, I'm saved, you're not kind of approach, isn't it? Rather than, than a sort of pure puritanism as it were well perhaps so a point that i attempt to make repeatedly throughout the manuscript is the scholars of the puritan period a big p puritan get very frustrated by our stereotypes about puritans most of which are rooted in 19th century and sort of the comstockery that evolved in that period the moral policing which took puritanism to an extreme the puritans themselves weren't nearly as puritanical as we make them out to be and yes i agree to the extent that they don't perceive themselves to be the executors of the behaviors that they hope to stigmatize. They do, however, take on themselves the great labors 
that are required to expiate these sins, as you say. The quote, the work, great displays of labor and discomfort. Indeed, you are to mire and wallow in your own discomfort as you suffer in the pursuit of a spiritual goal. It takes the forms of educating or otherwise refusing to educate individuals in the tenets of modern progressivism, speaking out and or being silent, as long as your silence is perceived as deference to people of marginalized identity, self-deprivation, a willing to sacrifice that which is enjoyable, be it food, entertainment, sports. You're attempting to create a monoculture here, and you're the person building that new ethos, which means that you have to model this behavior. As I said, projecting in inward insecurities onto otherwise banal pastimes, and particularly when it comes to sex and alcohol consumption, where I'm actually rather sympathetic to this movement because they have rediscovered a very old code of conduct insofar as we understand that when men and women are in situations that are bathed in alcohol, situations can arise that tear at the social fabric. The reestablishment of sort of a basic order around interpersonal conduct, particularly when it comes to intoxicants, and establishing limits around the pursuit of carnal pleasures is a very old code of conduct. This is the pursuit of a harmonious social contract. It has taken the form of a fanatical approach to organizing society and a, a myopic focus on those who do not subscribe to this value system. All oars must row in the same direction. Any dissenter cannot be allowed because that's to countenance depravity. But because they practice this for themselves, I can't see this as being something that is just an academic exercise on their part and their focus is primarily on you. It's not. The focus is primarily on themselves and their co-religionists, as it were. Let me play devil's advocate for a little bit here and say, maybe there's something to be welcomed about this uh, sort of puritanism, this sort of censoriousness, this constant lecturing we get, because at least it's a corrective, if you like, to the kind of libertinism that too many people worry about comes with the liberal societies that we've grown up with. I'm a lot older than you, but I can remember people have been saying for every single generation, oh my God, these young people today, they don't believe in anything. They don't bear, it's all about self-interest. It's all pursuing their own self-interest. Having this admittedly sort of manic, uh, rather obsessive and actually very irritating sort of moral outlook that they have, isn't that actually somewhat better than the alternative of just endless hedonistic self-satisfaction? Yeah, I mean, part of my mission here is to advertise to an austere young generation that they are a little less permissive than their parents and grandparents. I think they would resent that and reject that rather wholeheartedly. But it nevertheless is the case that they are creating for themselves a conservative social order that their parents rejected. And if you are a conservative, as I am, you do see a lot of value here, albeit the practice is a little extreme to the point that I think it destroys the project. But underlying it are some valuable moral codes. And I, I return to this throughout the manuscript in an attempt to be as generous as possible. The problem with the practice of the new Puritanism is manifold. First, it steals from you a sense of agency. It replaces that with a sense of purpose and mission. But your purpose is so grand, and the mission is so far off and out of reach, that it inculcates a sense of fatalism in its adherence. That's in part because they have conceptualized politics in a way that politics really isn't. We're talking about things with political themes. Your burrito is not politics. It may be a little political, but it's not politics. It is not amenable to legislative reform. It has nothing to do with electoral outcomes. And so when you build for yourself this worldview with its urgent moral priorities 
that the political establishment and the system in this country cannot respond to, certainly cannot address in the way you think it should be addressed. One of two things happens to you, you either become despondent, depressed, and withdraw from the political scene, which I think many have, in part because it's so exhausting and the practitioners of politics are absolutely exhausting. Or you radicalize, you resolve to attack the foundations of these wholly immoral institutions that will not or cannot respond to the absolute urgent moral imperative you've established for yourself. The answer to reestablishing, remoralizing in Gertrude Himmelfarb's formulation, society, is not to extirpate joy from it, is not to make of yourself an exhausting, miserable caricature of a social reformer that alienates you from the people around you. I mean, the, the Puritans themselves were aware of this. There were manuals. John Dodd, a practitioner of the faith, had you know manuals for converting your fellow men to the, the paramount mission of their lives. And among the many admonitions for his congregants were to avoid being, for lack of a better word, a scold a judgmental person who had refused to or was incapable of relating to his or her fellow man because they lived in the stratosphere. They saw things from a 30,000-foot perspective. We see this very much in the practice of the new Puritanism. Yeah, and I should say, I was, I was struck by a passage quite late in the book when you're talking about, and I want to come on to this, how this new Puritanism might be overcome. But you do acknowledge, and fairly, that actually in some ways, some of this you know, intense moralism that we've seen has achieved some things. Let me just quote this to you. So the new Puritanism has enjoyed many successes in its moral crusade, be it through persuasion or coercion. They've all but rid commercialism of its vulgar appeals to male sexual fantasies. They've compelled powerful institutions like the National Football League to bend to their demands making the game more ethical without sacrificing its charm. And they've imposed on the corporate world a set of mores that compels captains of industry to treat everyone with decency and respect. So again, I mean, you think that maybe there is some, you know, because this is, comes in the context, I think, of you talking about historically how some of the legacy of Puritanism, sort of traditional old-fashioned Puritanism, as it were, did have some beneficial consequences. So you think that maybe this is almost like there's kind of a dialectic here, that maybe it's gone a bit too far, but that we will draw some beneficial conclusions, some beneficial effects for society from this, this sort of current craze? Yeah, I do, although those were all I could name. Uh, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm not awash in good outcomes from this particular movement, but it's not without its redeeming factors. The Puritans themselves bequeathed us a profoundly valuable legacy, which is perhaps why the Puritan legacy has such a long half-life, despite the relative short-lived Puritan experiment itself. They bequeathed us with the proto-democratic institutions that became the basis for the American experiment in democracy, abolitionism that was absolutely unyielding and uncompromising, and the creation of a social compact that ensured that you didn't have to rely on charity alone in your darkest hours. These are good things. The Puritans themselves are not remembered fondly for their efforts. In the popular imagination, they have become laughingstocks, in part because they were so uncompromising, so unyielding in their value system. I foresee the same fate will befall the modern puritanical movement and its practitioners because they refuse to moderate their behavioral, not their prescriptions for society, but how they go about popularizing them, their behaviors, which are very unappealing. Anybody who is not animated by the pursuit of self-satisfaction that you're supposed to derive from the practice of a social good, even if the social good is absolutely physically unappealing on an instinctual gut level, does not advance your instinct towards self-gratification, needs to be drummed into you. And there's an element, both of condescension and mistrust of the general public that you see throughout 
both this manuscript and in the practice of a new Puritanism. It is very mistrustful of your instincts. The, you know, the sigh you relieve after consuming a, a sinfully Epicurean meal, the, the laugh that bursts from your gut after you hear a ribald joke, a little dirty joke. Uh, this is the stuff that occurs outside the intellect. Your body betrays you. The reactions that you have in that situation are ungoverned, which might suggest that you yourself are ungovernable. And if your primary mission in life is to establish an inviolable social order that ensures that everybody will stay in their lane at all times, that's a frightening prospect. But one of the things you talk about is, and again, you put this in the context of what happened to sort of Puritanism, but you talk about recent examples in the new Puritanism of, you know, in some ways by emphasizing vice, by emphasizing the avoidance of vice, you actually help to make vice seem a little bit more interesting and a little bit more exciting. I mean, the more you push people away from it, the more appealing it seems. You give good examples of people who probably we'd never have heard of, whose books we may never have heard of, who were sort of caused an outcry because they were supposedly not in line with the new puritanical code, and they got a lot of attention, and people were interested, and people were awakened, I suppose, to just how censorious the environment is. Do you think that's going to happen? We're seeing, seeing some of this is in the light. We're not talking here generally about the kind of the war against woke, if you like. But we are, I think, seeing some of that in the sort of some of the resistance to the kind of wilder extremes of wokeness. But do you think that is part of how, again, how this wave ultimately is resisted? Yeah, I think there'll be commercial pressures. So the answer, in my view, is to live a joyful life and to have a permission structure to be able to mock people or at least to look askance when individuals are making a spectacle of themselves. That's something that rather seems like there's more risk than reward today because this rather small band of censorious radicals punches well above their weight. But the permission will exist when the commercial pressures exert themselves. And as you say, what I'm talking about there, I, I tease out as a parallel with the phrase banned in Boston. So banned in Boston was a phrase that delineated a warning against impure literature in the heart of mainline Protestantism in the 19th century during the rise of Comstockery. Uh, societies for the suppression of vice were organized around initially thwarting the subversive influence of Walt Whitman's Leaves of Grass. They were a little paranoid. And we see something very similar today, but this was an effective way to stigmatize and remove access for Bostonians in particular to licentious literature. And it was very successful into the 20th century when a commercial backlash materialized led primarily by young people who were excited by the prospect of accessing this taboo literature. And Band in Boston went from being a warning against such literary experiences to a powerful advertisement for them. Publishers actively sought to have their books banned in Boston. And as you say, if there's a modern equivalent, I would say it's banned on Facebook, banned on Amazon. There will always be taboo breakers. There will always be iconoclasts who are dedicated to testing the parameters of their moral and legal environments. That is a small price to pay for living in a free society. It is one that a certain band of political activists believes is no longer worth the cost associated with it. But you can't extirpate this tendency unless you are to homogenize the culture and remove taste from the equation. This is a fight against human nature. It is bound to be lost. There's just going to be a lot of pain in the interim. It sounds as though, despite the pain in the interim point, that you're reasonably sanguine that this will pass. But I wonder if the entrenched nature and the seizure of the institutions of our society that has been so nearly complete by these uh, Puritans, whether it's you know academia, whether it is the major media companies, whether it is increasingly kind of, you know, sort of mainstream, what we think of as mainstream corporations, it is pretty well entrenched, isn't it? And I'm wondering whether, as you say, even from a 
commercial perspective, as people are sort of enticed by the prospect, if you like, of what the New Puritans would regard as vice, it's going to take quite a lot of resistance, isn't it, to actually overcome them? Well, it's something of a collective action problem at the moment, but collective action problems do resolve themselves. Occasionally, one or two people will jump off the cliff and lead a mob behind them. That's what we see now. Probably nine out of the 10 people I spoke with for this book are liberal, vote Democratic, wouldn't vote Republican if you paid them. But a backlash is building against their political allies, people with whom they have a daily contact with, because they get up every morning in the creative professions, unable to do their life's work, the love of their life. They have to practice politics now. Throughout the book, I demonstrate how people are leaving their chosen professions because they cannot do what they always wanted to do. I think that that is the basis for a backlash. I think that's the basis for perhaps a political coalition of the kind that we haven't seen since the 1960s, 1970s, when a certain type of Democrat became disillusioned with how the left had embraced the Black Panthers, Viet Cong apologists, wild radicals bent on violent pursuits, including bombings and other disruptive behaviors to society and the civil fabric. Some became Republicans, not all of them. A few of them remained Democrats, but we collectively call these people neoconservatives. And they were a profoundly influential political movement when a few decades hence, when the, the ideology had matured into a governing ethos. The seeds of something similar are present here I can't foresee where they materialize. And perhaps you're right. Maybe it takes a very long time. Maybe it never materializes in the way I forecast. But the backlash, the ingredients for the backlash are most certainly present. We like to think of ourselves as going on this arc of history where we're incredibly advanced, but the religious wars never really went away. We just sort of changed the labels. One thing I haven't asked you, but I'm interested in, is how much do you think this is allied to the kind of cult of safetyism that seems to grip America and many other Western societies at the moment, where we can't allow ourselves or our children to be exposed to any kind of risk? Is that a completely separate phenomenon or is it somehow part of this? I'm often asked when I do interviews around this book, when did this start? How did this start? And I didn't get into that in the manuscript, I would only hazard that the best explanation of when what we're seeing began was proffered by Greg Lukianoff and John Haidt in their book, The Coddling of the American Mind. And they placed the origins of this phenomenon somewhere around 2013, when you began to see on American campuses an orientation, a tendency, I suppose, a mental gesture that regarded nonconformity as menace that confuse speech with violence, actual physical trauma, and subsequently confused violence with speech as a result. And this tendency migrated off campuses, took with it the language, the pseudo-authoritative language of the academy and critical studies departments, and migrated into institutions that were helmed by people who were sympathetic towards this political orientation. And in a spectacular act of piracy, these individuals used this language, pseudo-authoritative moral language, to hijack and capture these institutions and morally blackmail their superiors and elders into handing over the reins of power. A lot of this book chronicles the use of the deployment of moral concepts to prosecute professional jealousies for the most parochial of gains to advance their own professional prospects. But there is a moral framework at play, and the moral framework is profoundly compelling compelling to anybody who's inclined towards the ordered society, towards living a moral, fulfilling life, towards respecting your neighbors and being historically aware and culturally wise. That's the sort of thing that is compelling, and it's being misused 
by a small, narrow band of progressive activists, not liberals, not Democrats, not even all progressives, but the puritanically inclined progressive to reorder society around their own both moral preferences and professional parochial preferences. If that is the origin story, it makes sense to me, but it's also such a rapid revision of the social compact that it's probably profoundly unstable. Noah Rothman, author of the new book, The Rise of the New Puritans, Fighting Back Against Progressive's War on Fun. Noah Rothman is also uh, associate editor of Commentary Magazine and uh, author of other books too. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Well, that's it for this week's episode of Free Expression with me, Jerry Baker, from the Wall Street Journal Opinion Pages. Thank you for listening. Please join us again next week for another exploration of the big issues that are shaping our world. Thanks very much and goodbye. Goodbye.